Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading 1 Chronicles chapter 19 from the World English Bible. After this, Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his place. David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon to Hanan to comfort him. But the princes of the children of Ammon said to Hanan, Do you think that David honors your father in that he has sent comforters to you? Haven't his servants come to you to search, to overthrow, and to spy out the land? So Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Then some people went and told David how the men were treated. He sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. The king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David, Hanan and the children of Ammon sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire chariots and horsemen out of Mesopotamia, out of Aram Maaka, and out of Zobah. So they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots and the king of Maaka with his people, who came and encamped near Mediba. The children of Ammon gathered themselves together from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab with all the army of the mighty men. The children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array at the gate of the city, and the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him before and behind, he chose some of all the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. The rest of the people he committed into the hand of Abishai, his brother, and they put themselves in array against the children of Ammon. He said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you are to help me. But if the children of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be courageous, and let's be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May Yahweh do that which seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him came near to the front of the Syrians to the battle, and they fled before him. When the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai his brother and entered into the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they were defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and called out the Syrians who were beyond the river, with Shophak, the captain of the army of Hadad-Ezer, leading them. David was told that, so he gathered all Israel together, passed over the Jordan, came to them, and set the battle in array against them. So when David had put the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. The Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrian men 7,000 chariots and 40,000 footmen, and also killed Shophak, the captain of the army. 
When the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and served him. The Syrians would not help the children of Ammon any more. That is the end of chapter 19. Going by the principle that God does not have incidental or accidental parts in his scriptures, we're going to assume that this account is here for a reason. But first, let's review some of the scriptures that um, support the idea that there is no accidental part of scripture. We have 2 Timothy 3.16 about it being inspired, God-breathed, and profitable. We have Romans 3.2 where it talks about the oracles of God. We have Romans 15.4 that says the scriptures are for our learning, and Hebrews 4.12 that says they are quick, powerful, and sharp. And then also Jesus refers to the scriptures in Matthew 21.42. He says, rather rhetorically, haven't you read the scriptures? Then in Matthew 22.29, he says they err because they don't know the scriptures. And in both of those questions or comments, there is the thought of knowing all of the scriptures. Now, I looked up the word scripture because, again, this is one of those religious words, biblical words that are not really used outside of studying the Bible. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says that the word that is translated scripture means writing. So when it says the writings, that sets them apart as distinct and holy. They are defined as God's writings. And then we also have the examples in Luke 24, 27, where Jesus expounds on the scriptures from Moses, which would be from Genesis, through all the prophets. So from all, for all of the Old Testament, including that, which would include this section. And then in John 5, 39, we are told to search the scriptures because they testify of Jesus Christ. So this account is here for a reason. It is not completely clear where this account fits in the timeline. The wording at the beginning that is translated after this is just sort of means that this happened. And we know from the previous chapter that David was already listed as being in battle with the Ammonites. So maybe this happened before that. Now, we also know from the end of First Chronicles 18 that David reigned with justice, and that's an overall summary of his reign, although we know that he made mistakes. There was adultery and murder in there, but he was contrite and repentant and humble when faced with his mistakes. So you can't say that this compassionate gesture on his part is in any way hypocritical or just for show. He is shown to be a man who cares about other people. And of course, we also have the Psalms, which speak of his repentance, and we have God's description of him being a man after his own heart. I will just insert here, by way of apology, that you may hear puppies in the background, but it was either not record this or have puppies with me. Now, just looking at the facts of this particular section, there's a listing of historic figures and nations, and there's a mention of Jericho, which was rebuilt later, which is referred to in the time of King Ahab in 1 Kings 16.34. So here, David must have simply been referring to where Jericho was as a landmark, that his men camped there. Possibly there were small communities, but as a city, Jericho had not been rebuilt yet. Chuck Missler points out that First Chronicles is an establishing of David's dynasty. You can see that from the genealogies all the way through the end of his reign. And it also highlights God's covenant with David, which is specifically laid out in 2 Samuel 7 as well. And this is foundational to everything that follows. 
Right away in verse 1, we get into a little bit of a puzzle because it says that Nahash had been a friend to him. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, we see that actually Nahash was at war against Saul and particularly against the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And Samuel the prophet reviews this in 1 Samuel 12 as well. But Nahash was apparently an ally of David's. And you can look at 2 Samuel 17, 27 to see that when David is fleeing from Absalom, that one of the sons of Nahash provides assistance. It seems likely, based on what we have here in 1 Chronicles 19, that this son was doing this as an ambassador for his father. And it's also interesting to think that this son, Shobi, was at least half-brothers with Hanan, so they have different perspectives on how they're interacting with David. But obviously here, Hanan does not have a good response to David. And then we get some of Joab's details for battle, which I think could be summarized as be valiant and trust God, which is a lot like what Joshua says in his words of encouragement to the children of Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Then in verse 18, we come up against some apparent discrepancies in numbers when we compare to the same account in 2 Samuel 10, 18. So some of what I'm going to say here will be similar to what I said there. So if you try to explain these as, quote, minor copyist errors, unquote, then you are on a slippery slope that has man-made limits and is open to individual interpretation. But see 2 Peter 1.20 for thoughts on this, where it says no prophecy is open to individual interpretation. Translation issues are different than that because we can always, one way or another, compare translations to the original language documents, which have been verified in many ways. And if you find curious confusions like this, even if you don't know other biblical languages, you can compare translations, always keeping in mind, of course, that there are so-called versions that are really perversions, such as the one called the mirror Bible and the Passion Bible, which are really just extensions of Satan's lie in the garden and his temptation of Jesus, where he just quotes scriptures and distorts it at the same time. But for those who are truly and humbly seeking the one and only true God, all of this will become clear. So now let me read you an explanation from a Bible-believing Christian website that I found. This is the website of Bible Baptist Church Ballincollig. And they are in Ireland. And that's one of the things I enjoy about the internet is the connection with Christians, true believers all over the world. They have a page addressing supposed contradictions. And this is addressed in question number six, which of course I will link to. And it says, firstly, to the supposed contradictions of 7,000 versus 700 chariots, 1 Chronicles 19.18 doesn't say 7,000 chariots as is claimed by unbelievers, for how could David slay chariots? So this is me interjecting here. This is an example of a translation issue in some translation. Back to what they are saying. The verses are giving the numbers of different things. Clearly, there were 10 men assigned to one chariot. 700 chariots equals 7,000 men. This was more or less normal practice, and you can refer to 2 Chronicles 1.14, which I'll read after we get done here. 
The case for the second supposed contradiction between the verses is equally weak. Evidently, David slew 40,000 horsemen, which 1 Chronicles 19.18 doesn't mention, and 40,000 footmen, which 2 Samuel 10.18 doesn't mention. Similar and much larger slaughters to this were not uncommon. See 2 Chronicles 13.17, 2 Chronicles 28.6, and 1 Kings 20.29. So now let me read 2 Chronicles 1.14 to you to show you what they're talking about. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, which he placed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So here in this passage, you can see the idea of having ten charioteers or horsemen for each chariot. But getting back to the main account, in summary, here in chapter 19, we have an example of someone reaching out to someone else in compassion and friendship, only to be violently rebuffed because of their distorted view of life and not believing in the relationship that had already been established between David and the Father. This is oddly like Jesus's claims being rebuffed by the Pharisees and the religious leaders when they wouldn't believe that he was from the Father. And the way that Hanan and his advisors treated the ambassadors is not unlike how the world treats people who try to share the gospel. They are constantly trying to embarrass us and cause us to feel shame and humiliation for speaking the truth and living as Christians. And much like Rehoboam's foolish young counselors, later this leads to bloodshed. Sin always leads to bloodshed. It is key here that David did not initiate these battles. He is merely defending his city and people. And when some of the people back down from their attacks, like Hadadezer in verse 19, David makes peace. So David was merciful when they stopped attacking him. I ran across a comment recently in a discussion about mercy, where a person was railing against God because he says God didn't show mercy to the people killed in the flood. However, at this point, God had been rejected completely by everyone other than Noah, and even with that, he waited and let Noah be in the ark for a week before he finally brought the flood. When this man rails against supposed lack of mercy, he fails to be honest about the fact that at some point consequences come, and we can know that God's timing is perfect. I would like to read three other passages to show that these people did have a chance to turn to God and didn't, and that God was merciful and patient with them. First, I'll read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. So here it says, Who formerly were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was pre preparing, in which few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And then 2 Peter 2, 5, where he says, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here we're given the picture that Noah was telling them what was coming and that they should repent. And then finally, in Hebrews eleven seven, where it highlights that Noah's faith is one thing that condemns them. By faith, Noah being warned by God of things not seen as yet 
moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Mercy was available, and it was rejected. Like with David's compassion, God's compassion and love is spurned violently by many people, and at some point he will take action against those who diligently practice wickedness. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey.